Welcome to Howden's podcast, Fortune Favors the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Hello and welcome to the Howden podcast series, Fortune Favors the Brave. Just by way of introduction, I'm Neil Williams and I'm a claims director here at Howden. This is going to be a two-part podcast on regulatory issues affecting professionals. And I'm joined today by three guests, Alexa Jones from Mills and Reeve, Neil Innes, also from Mills and Reeve, and Tim Gray. I'm going to let you each introduce yourselves, if that's okay. Uh, and after you've introduced yourselves, if you could, as part of our theme with Fortune Favours the Brave, uh, describe a risk you have taken recently and where it has paid off. So I'll start with you, Neil, if that's okay. Um, certainly. Hello. Um, I'm Neil Innes. Uh, I'm a partner at Mills and Reeve. I'm responsible for the insurance lawyers across the firm. And um, in terms of my professional work, I spend most of my time defending professionals against claims and when they've got difficulties in terms of regulatory exposure. Like any lawyer, I'm pretty risk averse. So I struggled to find something that I've really done. And um, I decided just before lockdown to ignore all of the advice that we receive from everybody and uh, acquired a dog without seeing it first, paying the people before we'd got it, and with no idea whether it was a good one or not. And um, he's a very valued part of the family and um, really nicely natured, so we were incredibly lucky. I think that's you and half of Britain purchasing the dog, isn't it? And <laughs> Great, thank you very much for that. And over to you, Alexa. Hello, I'm Alexa. I'm a Principal Associate at Mills & Reeve. I've been at the firm for something like 16 years now, started as a trainee. And like Neil, I work with professionals and they're ins- often their insurers to help them manage not only civil claims that have been brought against them, but also professional regulatory complaints and investigations. So I specialise in dealing with issues relating to legal and um, financial professionals, mainly uh, solicitors, barristers, accountants, insolvency pre- professionals, etc. Again, <laughs> mm-hmm. not, not, not the riskiest of people, and, um, but in terms of a, a risk I've taken... I did once buy a house that I hated, (laughs) Um, viewed it, said to my husband, it's awful, I hate it. And we were flying off on holiday that day. By the time we got to the airport, we'd put in an offer for it. (laughs) And then we'd had our offer accepted by the time we landed. But everything worked out fine. We uh, did it up and it was a lovely house. And how long did you live there in the end then? Eight years. Long enough, long enough. That's great. Thanks very much. And finally, over to you, Tim. Hi, I'm Tim Gray. I'm a barrister and I've been in practice now for, well, quarter of a century, 25 years. And I specialise in defending professionals in professional disciplinary settings and regulatory settings across the piece from healthcare on the one hand, right through to legal services and accountants on the other. The risks, I I didn't think I was a very risky person, but I've done both of the things that Neil and Alexa have done. And that's not even the risk I'm going to tell you about. (laughs) Um, About four years ago, I was contacted by a local football club who were a very lowly championship side. And they said, did I want to buy extremely expensive at the time season tickets to their new stadium? And I thought, well, I'm not sure I do. And I am denied. And eventually my son persuaded me I should. Um, We then went into lockdown and I couldn't watch any football there for the first year. The first match I saw was when they got into the Premier League and they were playing Arsenal because the team in question was the mighty Brentford. And I have enjoyed, I have to say, watching them ever since. And so that risk definitely paid off. That's great. That's a brilliant story. Thanks very much for that. So what are we going to cover off today? We're going to start with a brief history of regulation just to set the scene. Then we're going to have a look at what drives regulation, political, social pressures, we're going to have a look at the challenges facing regulators and we're going to have a brief look at corporate investigations. And then 
in the second part. We'll talk a little bit about the interplay between regulatory investigations and professional indemnity claims. And then we'll look at some practical steps as how you deal with those regulatory issues when they're combined with professional indemnity claims at the same time. So to start with, Tim, could you give us a sort of potted history of regulation from your perspective? Yes, I think one sort of has to go back a little bit in history. So I I, I go back um, to before the Second World War, but only very briefly, and then I'll pick it up from the Second World War onwards when things get a little bit more interesting. But it's as well to set the scene that um, the oldest of the regulators, apart from the Inns of Court who regulate barristers or used to regulate barristers, was the Law Society. And of course, they were founded in, I think, 1825, but I'll be corrected if I'm wrong. Probably lots of uh, solicitors shouting at the podcast. But that was very much a sort of a loose agglomeration of solicitors rather than any regulatory capacity as we'd know it now. The first proper regulation really came in 1858, I think, GMC, which has always led the way, and perhaps understandably, healthcare has led the way because, of course, the problems, if doctors get it wrong, are so much more obvious than perhaps other professionals. But then fast-forwarding right the way up, to um, when things get a little bit more recognisable as we know them today. And there's a, there's still a case that's often quoted, a case called um, the GMC and Spackman from 1947, which kind of sets the scene as to where regulation was at the time. And Mr. Spack, Dr. Spackman, forgive me, was in front of his regulator because he was a divorcee. And this was considered shocking. And should he still be practising as a doctor if he if he was divorced from um, the good Mrs. Spackman? And that gives you a sort of sense of what regulation was about in terms of the doctor's profession. And what came alongside that was regulation of dentists and other healthcare professionals so that we then start getting the lawyers and the accountants coming in more to the later part of uh, the 1940s and into the 1950s to where we have a system now where there's huge regulation, as we all know, of all the main professions. So turning to you now, Neil, I mean, obviously, there's been quite a few political and social influences on regulation over the last few years. Um, Issues around immigration lawyers uh, in relation to the SRA and and British Steel, for example, in relation to IFAs. What do you think has been driving some of those issues? Uh, Well, I think there's just a huge amount now of public pressure, recognising that professionals are I mean, what what you would call professionals in the old sense. Uh, We're starting to draw on obligations for people based on their status and how they ought to be being uh, to behaving. And I think the best example of actually seeing how this is, is probably that immigration example. Um, We can all remember the, 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 the fuss that was going on around the Daily Mail investigation, which discovered, apparently, that firms were there hunting for and looking for immigration cases which in itself is fine, but actually then guiding, training, helping their clients to put forward a particular case in a way to enhance the prospects of making out their claim for um, uh, uh, their, their immigration status. And I think that that really, in today's political environment is hitting on quite a lot of what you might call trigger issues and therefore it's picking up a lot of attention and so we've seen real pressure on somebody like the SRA to deal with those um, and, and actually to start investigating and you know the day we're recording at the moment there's a lot of other things going on as well where where you can start looking and I know we'll come on later to social media type of comments from professionals generally. 
Um, so really, it is, it's, it's a headline news type topic for the professions and their regulators feel an obligation to get involved in it, I think. Um, and you can just look the way that, um, so only last week when we're recording, um, the, uh, the new act, um, it's the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act, got royal assent. It's not in force yet because there's, um, it's got to be commenced by statutory instrument, but it's moving away from just um, what those trigger issues to... Um, the obligation on lawyers, for instance, to try and detect and prevent economic crime. So the SRA is likely to be given, assuming it's brought into actually force, um, unlimited the right to impose unlimited fines on certain of their members for people missing their responsibilities for the economic health of the nation. So that just means missing, not doing your AML checks properly. If you start doing those types of things, which is what all lawyers are doing, and lots of other professionals, the consequences now can be seen politically to be much more serious because the SRA can have unlimited fines about it. Um, and also, I think it's quite interesting to think about those when you look at the stretched resources of our regulators. Um, they've, they've got a limited amount of resource to do this, so they are going to miss things, which I think feeds into that political public discourse that our regulation isn't being done properly. Um, so I, th I think it, it's undoubtedly something that's uh, receiving an attention which it didn't once receive. Regulation, when I started, was something that was, you know, it happened and you had to have your hand in the till. It had to be that type of really obvious breach. And it's way more extensive than that now that we're looking at because of the way that um, the public expects people to behave. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And just leading on from that, I mean, we're seeing much greater interest on personal behaviour and conduct issues, aren't we? I mean, we've certainly seen issues um, where the SRA have, have picked up problems in the, in the past and the ICAW are also taking a firmer line. I mean, for example, at the beginning of 2022, they issued new guidance regarding the influence of personal behaviour on professional conduct. I don't know if you want to pick up there, Alexa, on some of the issues that you've seen. Yes, uh, relevant to all professionals, of course. Um but you know, notably one of the main messages to come out of the SRA's recent annual conference was about AML compliance and uh, firms failing to meet requirements, fixed automatic fines, that sort of thing. But investigations now are as likely to concern those personal behavioural issues, um, sort of sexual misconduct is, is, is the hot topic at the moment, as well, you know, as well as those thefts from account points. Um, you know, and then the, the question really that everyone's grappling with at the moment is the extent to which a regulator can and should regulate a professional's personal life, their private life. And there's certainly a growing trend to view immoral behaviour as bringing the profession into disrepute, particularly where, say, in the case of sexual misconduct, harassment allegations, um, that there is a connection with that professional's work um, because the complainant perhaps is a colleague or a client or it the, the event in question happens at a work's Christmas do, for example. Um, and I think, you know, looking at the SRA, it's a really different beast from when it was formed 16 years ago or so. Their ag agenda and their resource is definitely shifting. And there are also these stories that are hitting the mainstream media um, in, you know, this post-Me Too environment we now live in. Um, the, the, these stories are very damaging for public trust in professions. Me Too has also encouraged complainants to come forward. Um, this is not new stuff that's happening in the workplace. It's just people now have that voice. They can come forward. So I think in the five years prior to 
2018, the Me Too movement, the SRA got something like 30 complaints regarding sexual misconduct, as opposed to those five years after, um, over 300 um, complaints, I understand, were received. Um, and you know, we have some really high-profile cases as well. They're not just in the in the legal press; they're in, in the mainstream media. We had that case of um, Oliver Bretherton. You may be familiar with. It was widely publicised. Um, the STT struck him off the roll in June this year um, after um, listening to the complaints of young women who worked with him at a city firm when he was a director there. They upheld something like seventy allegations against him. And it was the first time a solicitor had been struck off for sexual misconduct in the workplace, falling short of a criminal conviction. And, and the hearing really, you know, everyone was following it quite closely in, in the legal world. It, it involved really lurid details of intimate messages and videos sent to a teenage colleague and a, a legal apprentice. Something, you know, she was something like 20 years his junior. Um, and there was a 16 day hearing stretched out from February to June, hearing all these details the tribunal described, uh, sorry, the evidence before the tribunal described him as controlling, unreasonable, inappropriate, laddish, childish. And I think strike off seemed like the only option open to the regulator. I think historically regulators have been uncomfortable with just applying financial penalties to cases like this rather than suspensions or strike offs. But they seem obviously a lot more keen to do that now. And rightly so. Revised guidance for the SRA, of course, accompanying its new fining powers, states that behaviours relating to sexual misconduct are unsuitable for financial penalty um, other than exceptional circumstances. So the key issues that they're investigating, lack of consent, um, and as in the Bretherton case, whether there was that abuse of power. So we had the young apprentice and the director of, of a city firm. And I, I, I think what Alexa says is, is absolutely right. And it doesn't come from nowhere, of course. And going back to that historic, sorry to bang the historical gong again, but coming from the healthcare perspective into other perspectives, um, and it's worth reminding oneself of what these regulators are trying to do, what the mission statement is. And first and foremost, it's to protect the public, consumers, clients, and then to the wider public interest, which has been identified in healthcare proceedings um, by upholding public confidence in the particular profession and maintaining and declaring standards. And all of the wording changes very slightly when you're looking at legal services and an accountant. The, the principles are still the mm -hmm. same. And I think Alexa's identified absolutely one of those two huge growth areas for regulators, sexual misconduct. And the Me Too movement has certainly acted as a catalyst in that regard. The other area where it's it's huge at the moment is that that growth of social media because there is that spotlight on everybody's opinions and we all know that social media is is a tool for good and evil all at the same time and i think professionals just have to be aware of not only those sexual misconduct issues but also the fact that as soon as you put something out there it is out there and it affects not just your personal life but it can affect your profession as well Thanks, Tim. I think there's some really useful points there. And just picking up on those, Alexa, I mean, what do you see as being the challenges regulators face today in terms of, you know, social media and other issues? Because it's quite difficult to navigate mm. those waters in terms of being able to express an opinion and whether that opinion is reasonable or whether it might bring the profession into disrepute. Well, I think it is a very modern challenge, isn't it? Social mm. media and different generations use it differently as well. And this is something that, that regulators are really struggling with. And professionals also um, trying to, you know, some are pushing their boundaries and some are not clear on where those boundaries are. 
Um, but looking at the rules, you know, generally speaking, I think I had a, a quick look online, see, you know, how regulators are approaching this. And there's not a huge amount of like explicit guidance out there for a lot of regulators. But I think when I looked at the Bar Standards Board, they had some pretty good guidance. Um, it it recognises that you know barristers are going to want to participate in online debate on a range of issues, including those of general public importance. And I think we're seeing that at the moment, certainly with what's happening in the Middle East. And we were talking about that on the walkover, weren't we, Neil? Yeah. <laughs> um, use of social media, it, you know, is is likely to um, engage the right to freedom of expression, expression under Article 10. Um, and it includes the right to hold and express opinions and receive and impart information and ideas. Um, but Article 10, of course, is is a qualified right that has to be balanced against others, uh, other rights protected by um, ECHR, so, so rights and reputations of other members of the profession. And, you know, consumers of barristers and, and barristers' services. But lawyers, by virtue of their profession, they, they have a, almost a special status, don't they, that justifies placing certain restrictions on their conduct. They are that intermediary between the public and the courts. So I think it's legitimate to expect barristers to really contribute to the proper administration of justice and maintain that public confidence. But, you know, problems do arise when you post material online, which is discriminatory, for example. So, you know, a barrister's attitude towards people from certain groups, perhaps minoritised or vulnerable groups, that might in, that might inform and indicate how that barrister is going to interact with those people in the f- future, including how they might provide legal services to them. They could be, you know, look, looking to alienate clients, future clients and members of the public who identify as falling within that category of person. And, you know, it also, you know, damages the profession how can how can people trust a barrister or the profession to act in their best interests when these are the views that they're voicing publicly online? And it really can be seen as a risk to access to justice. You know, the public nature of, of social media means anything you post online can be read by anybody. I agree. Um, I think it's really about balance and the line can be very difficult. So if you look at examples, I mean, there's been a couple in the barrister context where certainly um, there was a finding against one barrister for failing to prevent tweets being sent from a a Twitter handle, which was an anonymised one, but he had access to it. He had nothing to do with sending them, but he failed to prevent it, knowing that they were being sent. And actually, he did retweet them or reshare them or whatever it is at the moment. And so a finding was made against him. But there are other examples where what might be seen as comments that you would expect to be subject to criticism actually was determined to be proper and fair political comment. So a view on, for instance, an act of parliament or something of legitimate political view. And that's acceptable and should be acceptable. And as, a, as an avid reader of barrister Twitter, I want people to be, still be able to speak so long as they don't cross that line. I think if I can add in, Neil, that, that a lot of regulators I've worked with, and the BSB is no exception, have, have a a very difficult job to do, as you've already identified, but there's a difference um, of two types of behaviour that you get in these kinds of online cases. And the first is that type of case where the, the mere substance of what's being said is beyond the freedom of expression rights. Those are the very, very rarest of cases um, and usually involve things, for example, Holocaust denial, which, as we know, is uh, an offence in certain uh, European jurisdictions in any event. 
far more prevalent and certainly more prevalent in the Article 10 case law and certainly more relevant to regulators, and the BSB is no exception, is the words that are used and the way in which something is conveyed, which in and of itself can jeopardise public confidence in the barrister and in the profession. And so very often the clarion call from those who are involved in this situation is, well, it's my right to express this view. And it may be the individual's right to express the substance of the view. And I don't think many regulators really want to get involved in policing that. Regulators feel the need, I think, to get involved when the language that's used is unnecessarily inflammatory or inciting people to a particular point of view. And that's, I think, where most of those issues come from that you've already talked about. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because these people, uh, you know, have a large following. They have a voice, they have a platform, and they feel sometimes morally obliged to to use that platform to get their, you know, their, 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 their views out there. Um, so I think it is a really difficult challenge for regulators, regulators, and it also you know goes to this point about it blurring the the lines between your professional and your personal life, and it's mm-hmm. it's very difficult to untangle that, isn't it, from a regulator's perspective? The the debate I've often had with others is um, when they talk about should we be policing the way in which people express political opinions? Should barristers? specifically be able to express those political opinions. And I agree with both of you that absolutely they should. Well, if they couldn't, Margaret Thatcher, Ken Clark, Keir Starmer, Suella Braverman, any other number of parliamentarians would find themselves in front of their regulator because they're still barristers. They're still practising. Well, they're not practising barristers, but they're non-practising barristers. And if expressing those views brings you into conflict with your regulatory obligations, we've got a real problem. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Joel, for your contributions on that. It's a really interesting and difficult and vexed subject, I have to say. But um, we'll see what the future holds, but hopefully common sense will prevail. The last topic I wanted to just pick up on in the first part of the podcast was uh, the increasing level of uh, interest in corporate investigations. Over the last few years, we have seen Carillion uh, and Patisserie Valerie in particular, uh, which have attracted a huge amount of public interest. It's actually surprising in the circumstances to to see that the Audit Reform Bill... uh, uh, didn't make it to the King's speech this year. Um, I've seen already that the ICAW have raised some concerns about that, um, which, yeah, it is particularly interesting in, in light of the fact that these uh, corporate investigations have received such attention in the media and have also had such an impact on a wide range of people. Uh, Alexa, I think you wanted to pick up on this. That's right. I think it's getting a lot of uh, attention from the regulatory front, but not necessarily from the political front as, you know, the ICAW have been expressing some real frustrations around the audit reform um, bill. But, you know, it might, they might not have the same level of personal interest uh, as the, uh, you know, the sexual misconduct cases, but the impact and adverse finding um, can have on a professional and their business when you're looking at these corporate investigations can be really significant. And as you said, one of the, the latest big ones was the uh, FRC's handling, handing out a I think, historic fine of £21 million for KPMG um, for its audits of Carillion, who you might recall, a a large contractor that collapsed back in 2018. Um, Last month, I think, FRC announced that KPMG was initially fined £30 million, um, but that was decreed, the penalty was brought down due to the level of uh, cooperation they provided throughout the five-year investigation. Um, but the FRC highlighted in, in in the Carillion matter that you know they had Carillion had twelve thousand staff on their books. Um, it, 
it was a large organization and they held significant um, importance as a client for KPMG. And, and, and in so, the audit team there faced a real risk to their objectivity in carrying out the audits for them. And, and the findings against KPMG were really pretty damning and, and, and KPMG accepted uh, the findings of the FRC and the sanction. The regulator specified that um, you know one of the partners there at KPMG who led the audit team that had he had at times approved audit reports before completing all the necessary work. This individual he himself got a sanction of five hundred thousand pounds that was later reduced, um, and uh, another partner there was also fined a hundred thousand pounds for his part in the audit. So this is serious, serious um, uh, teeth that the regulator is showing in terms of its handling of, of this audit work. KPMG agreed. The audit firm, the audit work conducted there was was very bad. I think was the quote, um, and junior colleagues were also found to have been, you know, really let down by those who were supposed to be looking after them and managing this work. We talked about the audit reform bill. You know, the government has um, previously committed to overhauling the audit and the you know, corporate governance systems in in response to this and all those other several, you know, high profile uh, collapses. Yeah, we've talked with BHS. I think was probably one of the first ones. Patisserie Valerie. But, you know, the, the, the legislation isn't going through. So I don't know what that says about how, the importance that, that has been given to this level, you know, of you know financial failing, really. Um, so I think the government really does need to, to grab, get, get a hold of this and push forward the audit reform bill. But there does not seem to be the political appetite for that, certainly before the end of this government's term. Now it'll be interesting to see how soon that changes because inevitably there'll be a large corporate failure that comes to the fore in the near future and uh, whether there's further interest shown at that point we'll have to see won't we? Many thanks to my guests Alexa Jones and Neil Innes and Tim Gray. Please do join us again for part two where we'll be talking about the interplay between regulatory issues and professional indemnity issues and also covering off some effectively risk management points in terms of how you will deal with those issues if you face them in your professional career. Thanks again. Join us for part two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.